If you're an occupational therapist looking to develop your skills in hand therapy, this podcast is for you. Your host, Huang Tron, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist turned serial entrepreneur with her own therapy clinic in Miami. Huang is an author and successful coach helping occupational therapists get jobs, develop their skills, and become certified hand therapists so they can become experts in their area. Huang works with occupational therapists from across the United States and around the world. She talks about everything from hand therapy skills, career development, leadership skills, money mindset, and business. You too can become an expert certified hand therapist, business owner, and have more choices in your career. Subscribe now. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk to you guys this morning. Like I said, I'm, my name is Huang. I run my own private practice in Miami and I also run and teach online through handtherapysecrets.com. I'm just gonna go over the objectives today is to really go over some a quick anatomy and then share with you a framework that I use not only in my clinic but with my students and I call it the fast track framework. And one of the reasons why I call it the fast track framework is that a lot of times we as therapists, regardless of whether you're just getting started in hand therapy, you're doing pretty well, or you're a certified hand therapist with many years of experience, is that sometimes we get cases that come to us and we don't have the prescription, we don't have the op note, you know, not everyone works with a surgeon, next to the surgeon, has access to the surgeon 100% of the time, or have access to like hospital records. And I'm saying that because I used to work in the hospital and I had records that I could access like x-rays and reports and stuff like that. And then I left there and went and worked for a private clinic right across the hall from the hand surgeon. And I had access to, <clears throat> had access to him, I had access to all the records from his staff. And so, you know, in that sense, you can gather a lot of information when you get those type of patients that come in before they come in so you can know exactly what to do. Nowadays, you know, I work in a private practice and I don't have that quote unquote luxury of just knowing always exactly what's coming through the pipeline. And I think that what happens is a lot of people who are practicing are in the same boat. Right. And so I developed this framework to help, you know, regardless of whether you're new, you've been practicing for a while or you're an expert, this framework so that it can help you think through cases easier, even if you don't know like exactly what's going on. And you can think through those cases no matter when that patient comes into you. If we're fortunate and they're fortunate, we get them in pretty fast, right? We get them in pretty quick and we get them in like right after injury or post-surgery. But in this day and age, people are more skeptical. They wait. They're just not sure because let's face it, there's so much information out there right now that people are just confused, you know, with what to decide or what to do with all that information. 20, 30 years ago, there was no information. So we're on the other swing of it. But this framework really just allows us to, to dive in and make decisions and help our patients really at the end of the day make decisions about coming into therapy and getting the results that they're hoping for. So I'm gonna go through that. And then we're gonna go through some, some cases that I have and how I just progress them through the protocols and how to progress them towards the end goal that they wanted. And then I'm gonna also include in the talk just recommended orthosis versus plaster casting. All right, so, oh, thank you for turning your picture on. I like to see faces, so if you wanna put your face on, I wanna see faces, cause that allows me to know who I'm talking to and am I boring you or is it, am I on point? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're confused, I can tell. <laughs> All right, so feel free to turn your camera on so I can see some faces and I can interact with you guys. So, like, you guys do an amazing job. There's 74, you know, over 70 people on this call, which is really a credit to this association for putting on such a great platform for you guys to join, not just locally in your area, but for those who are joining outside of the area. Kudos to this association. All right, so I'm gonna go over just a general anatomy, and this is what I do with my students. I'm super low-tech. I'm gonna see if I can pin myself. Uh, I just pinned you, Juan, so I just wanna make sure that for all the attendees, like on your screen, you should be able to see her real big. 
and then all everybody else should be at the top screen, smaller, but with video. Is that great. right? You Thumbs guys. Up. Oh, perfect. Great. I usually do this for my own lecture, so I'm like, wait, I'm not pinned, and then you might not be able to see. So um, I'm real low tech because, you know, the way I like to teach my own students is just to help them have an understanding as well. And then this is this works great for patients as well. I love explaining to patients what's going on with them and in a very simplified way so that they have a buy-in if they have buy-in to the fact that they understand what's going on, they understand how they can get results by coming into you as, a, as an expert, they're gonna keep coming. And it's not gonna matter about money or time, they're gonna come in because they want the results that you are gonna give them. So when I think about the hand, I think about, I essentially just draw blocks, right? So this is P3, P2, and then P1, right? And I think about like where potentially the fractures can be. And then we know that we have ligaments right here. We have collateral ligaments on the side of P1, P2, and those ligaments are always tight. It doesn't matter if you're in extension, if you're in flexion, they're always tight. And this is one of the reasons why they're always the problem child of the hand. You can break your big knuckle, you can break your little knuckle, and you'll still have problems with your IP. <laughs> and then we have coming on the flexor side. So if you're looking at this and this is your anterior view and the other side is your posterior view, you know that your flexor tendons are here and it attaches to the proximal end of P2 that allows you to flex that PIP and then you have your profundus that comes and attaches and allows DIP flexion and also helps with PIP flexion and MP flexion. And then you have a, on the anterior side as well, your volar plate. So here's where I would essentially draw that volar plate. Now you can do the same and we could take a look at it from the side view. the side view, and here would be your volar plate, and this would be your flexors, right? Here are your flexors. And then, of course, you have your extensor, yeah, like all your extensor hood. So I'm just gonna draw it simply like this. So it's always something to keep in mind in terms of anatomy when you think about different various hand injuries. Today I'm going to speak specifically about fractures just because there are, you know, so many different types. You can have tendon lacerations and stuff like that. I'm going to speak on more fractures of the hand and of course what are the types of injuries when it pertains to fractures. You can have, or of the fingers in the hand, you can have fractures you can have dislocations and you can have fracture dislocations. And the way I always explain it with my patients are fractures, at least you can see where the bone is broken, right? When you can see where the bone is broken, they almost have a little comfort, right? Feeling because they can see that it's broken and potentially they could, you know, do the surgery to fix it. So they it's something that they can see right dislocations are a lot harder because they're the soft tissue aspect and you can't really see that sometimes people talk about like let's do an mri but the structures are honestly they're so small you can't see it and what are you going to do with that information anyway mris are usually done because you need to see something so that you can potentially do surgery usually with dislocations especially with the sprain strain ones you can't really do anything you know it's really just about reducing the pain and doing the therapy and then there's fracture dislocations and the way i explained that is you know it was bad enough that you had a fracture but now you have two particular problems you have a bony problem and you have a soft tissue problem and one of the reasons why i like to go over a little bit of that anatomy is because it allows for you to understand like based on the injury. So today I have a case where she actually broke the PIP. She broke P1 
and it was an interarticular fracture. So it went through the joint and it was displaced enough and it was so bad she had a fracture and a dislocation. So when you take a look, when you get cases that come in and you don't always know what's been going on, one way, especially if they've had surgery, one way to look and see what might be going on is just by looking at their scars, right? Just by looking at their scars, you may be able to determine and then guide your questions in a way that will help you get the answers from your patients if you cannot get them from the doctor's office fast enough right so we have the two types of injuries you have your fractures your dislocations and then your fracture dislocations so think about let's think about the types of treatment now for those types of injuries all right let's think about those types of um, those types of injuries so for example for your let's do types of treatment so we can chunk them up into different buckets of treatment, right? You can have your conservative treatment. You can have conservative treatment. And in conservative treatment, what are you thinking that they're, you know, that usually entails? Usually entails casting or splitting. Right. They're very similar in the sense that they just want to immobilize you. They just want to immobilize you. So let's say you have a P, you have a P3 fracture and or a P2 fracture or a P1 fracture. If it's anywhere between the PIP or the DIP, they're going to potentially try to Im just immobilize you through using splints. They can be an aluminum splint that their doctor puts on. It could be like a prefab, such as a stack splint that someone puts on, or it could be essentially plaster casting or a custom fitted orthosis with thermoplast material, right? So that's a type of treatment that can occur. And then if you have a fracture or a fracture dislocation, that is severe enough and the severity is if it's into the articular cartilage if it's displaced a certain amount or if it's into multiple pieces multiple fragments then you're going to most likely see a surgical component right and when you think about surgery what types of surgeries are you considering that the doctor is going to be doing so depending on the location of that fracture you might see an ORIF you might see pins, right? What else? You might also see from that, from that, from that anatomy portion, you might see ligament repairs, right? You might see some ligament repairs. And it, of course it depends on the case. Does anyone have any cases that they're currently treating right now that sounds at all similar do you have a finger fracture finger dislocation they're one of the toughest ones just because what generally happens to the pip what generally happens to the pips tend to get stuck right they get stuck and they get and they like to get stuck in the middle they don't want you know they get stuck in the middle and actually I always say that each of our fingers tend to have their own personality and attitude. So the index fingers, if you have a fracture there, index fingers like to stay straight, right? Who's with me? Who sees this? I always say the index fingers like to stay straight. And it's because you can get around your life without using it. So then people are like, oh my God, it's so stuck, so stuck straight, right? And I just can't bend it. But even in that extended position, you're going to see a little bit of a flexion contracture because peas, they like to stay in the middle, right? And then in all these other fingers, they like to be in a more flexed position. And the further you go along the finger, especially to the small finger, you're gonna see more flexion, am I right? So ideally, we do not want more than 30 degrees, right? 
but ideally we want it to be as straight as possible. I don't know about you, but I'm a very, what I call a loosey-goosey person. I have lots of joint play, and if I broke my finger, knock on wood, I always say if I broke my finger, I would want to get as much motion back as possible, even that hyperextension, so that I can feel loose and my joints can have that flexibility. So they all have their little attitudes, with this being the most straight in extension and this one being the most flexed. So if anyone has cases like that, let me know. We can talk about it because I'm going to share the case that I had with you that had the same problem and it was my favorite, the middle finger, <laughs> which likes to stay in that 30 degrees, you know, but what happens if you have a fracture here? It's always going to make your DIP very stiff. Why? If you go back to anatomy, if your tendons are not gliding very well, then your profundus will not glide very well. If you are not able to move, guess what? Your extensorhood won't like to move either. So you have your central tendon, but then you also have your terminal tendon, and then of course you have the all the bands on the side. So you have your your lateral bands, your ORL, your, or what is it called, oblique, right, nacular ligament, so all those things, everything gets tight and nothing is moving, right? So then we have to think, well, what are we gonna do in order to be able to help them? And this is where I like to use my fast track framework, right? So if you have cases that come in and you're just not really sure and you're just not really sure about like where they're going to get started, or what you're allowed to do with them based on their injury, this framework, which I call my fast track framework, fast track framework allows you to go through all the, I guess like areas and pieces that you could potentially work on, right? And we have bones, we have muscles and tendons. And the reason why I stick them together is because the muscles attach to the tendon and it's from the movement of the muscles. Muscles only get long and only get short is what allows our tendons to glide, right? Especially in the hand. And then we have our ligaments. And our ligaments are what holds bone to bone and gives us that stability and that structure, all right? And then we have nerves. In the hand, we have digital nerves. And if we're just sticking to like fractures and dislocations, they're technically not injured, but let's face it, the structures of the hand are so small that sometimes they're, they're irritated, right? They're kind of being crushed or tethered down. And so when people come in really stiff and they tell you that they have like a numbing sensation or they just feel like numb and tired all the time, it's probably because it's tethering down on the nerves. And then we have our skin and fascia, right? So this essentially is the framework that I go through and I go through with my students, I go through it with my, my, my patients, and it's a great way to explain to somebody what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. So let's think about when your case came in particularly and they and you don't have any information. And so my woman, she came in and just looking at her scars, she had little scars on the side and she had pins. So she had little pin holes from the actual pin and she was actually able to tell me that she had pins. And when I spoke to her, I knew, okay, she most likely had a fracture, which she knew she had a fracture, but I just wasn't sure, did she have a dislocation as well? And so it was in looking at her scars that I was able to say, you know, it looks like you had a fracture, but was your finger in a certain, did it look like it was bent in the opposite direction or whatever, where you potentially had a dislocation as well? And she goes, I think so, I think so. And so that just allows me to know, okay, how 
fast can I go? Or how can I explain to her how slow she's going to need to go or how slow the progress is going to take? Because if you just had a fracture and it was nice and simple, you might be able to go a little bit faster, right? Your progress might be a little faster, but you have a fractured dislocation that compounds your injury. And so I'm able to explain to her, listen, you have you have two potential, you have two problems, not just one. So we still have a particular protocol we can follow, but just to let you know, don't get frustrated. Don't get frustrated if you're not seeing your fingers move as fast as you would like to. I don't know about you, but every single patient that comes in wants to be better yesterday. I've had injuries. I wanted to be better yesterday. You know what? As a matter of fact, I didn't even want the, the injury to start with right so most of them are going to feel that kind of way and when you start working with your patients it's i find it so helpful to be able to talk to them in this way that simplifies everything but also shows them that we are the experts as occupational therapists as certified hand therapists to know we're going to be able to help you and get results but you do your portion i'm going to do my portion together when we work together we're going to get the best possible results for you right so i know that there's a fracture and i know that if she came in at a particular time i'm allowed to move her so what do we know about bone healing right bones start to you know to heal show signs of clinical healing around you know four to six weeks right actually before two to four weeks and then it continues to heal and you have that clinical and you can start moving them more about four to four to six weeks and then around eight weeks it's a lot more solid so you can start doing a lot more passive range motion a lot more like strengthening over a period of time until you get to 12 weeks and around 12 weeks then you can go ham you have no precautions the bone should be healed now obviously that depends on the fact that the bones are aligned and they're showing those clinical signs of healing right sometimes your fractures could be so large and so far displaced that it takes so much to to fill in the gap all right so she had surgery though so if she had surgery that tells me that they essentially put her back together pinned her to stay stable and by the time she came in to me she was four weeks along so what does that tell me her bones you have a certain amount of stability right so hey victoria based on when you're coming in you're four weeks now your pins are out and so the doctor wouldn't remove your pins unless you were showing signs of a great healing and you're allowed to remove those pins and start gentle active range of motion right so gentle active range of motion is for here but what about all the other joints that are not involved I know because your P1 and your your other fingers or your other bones are not broken I'm actually allowed to move them and make sure that they're moving luckily for her she was just stiff at P, PIP and DIP her MPs looked really good right what do I know about muscles and tendons well muscles and tendons like I said the tendons have to be able to glide and move the flexors pull but in order for the flexors to pull the extensors have to give and in order to extend our extensors especially here in the PIP and the DIP they tend to be small they tend to be weak so they have to actually work against how strong the flexors are to pull them down right and they're so weak that sometimes we have to put them in certain positions like the MP into a flex position so that the PIP can have a chance to go into extension from our intrinsic muscles, right? Our intrinsic muscles are the muscles that allow us to flex the MPs and extend the IPs. And if you've had surgery, everything is locked down for four weeks, you haven't moved, right? And that was necessary for your bones, your fractures to be stabilized and healed, and now we're allowed to start moving everything ligaments right ligaments well you had a dislocation potentially repaired those ligaments and so after a ligament repair what happens you want to stiffen them up and then after about four to six weeks you want to start to move them well pips like i said your collateral ligaments 
are tight in both directions. So if they did the surgical procedure to stabilize those ligaments and you've been immobilized for four weeks now, we're technically allowed to start moving them. And ligaments, we wanna be careful because we wanna pay attention to pain. We wanna make sure that you can move, but in a relative, and I say relative because PIPs are always painful, relative pain-free motion, pain-free way, but where they feel stable. You know, the ligaments in the PIP, they're taut all the time, they're strong, so they do give stability. It's not the same, I mean, ligaments are ligaments, they work the same, but it's not exactly the same as if you compare ligaments to other parts. But in the PIP, they get tight, very fast and so it's solid i'm technically at four weeks i'm technically allowed to start moving right and then don't forget that the pip i mean the dip here which it has not been moving is technically not hurt so you can actually move the dip so much more so much faster even though it hurts like the dickens right but how do you get patients to buy into the fact that they're allowed to move even though it hurts? Well, we can explain it like this. We can explain it to them like that actually wasn't hurt. It was just hurt, you know, as a second order consequence, as a consequence of this one not moving, but we're technically allowed to move it, right? Now nerves, if you didn't cut anything, the nerves weren't injured and that means you're allowed to move. You're allowed to, you know, to extend your fingers, you're allowed to curl your fingers down and you're allowed to move. Now skin and fascia is really funny because it sometimes can be the forgotten structure. But if you haven't moved in a really long time and you've had surgery and there we have such little little itty bitty pictures in our fingers and there's really not that much meat so if you think about it you need it's the only place you want wrinkles right it's in your hands and fingers it's the only place so when i don't see wrinkles that tells me that you're really swollen that tells me that when you have swelling and you have swelling for a really long time that swelling hardens and turns into essentially scar tissue and so the faster we can move it, the faster we can move your fingers, but the more we can move your skin around it is what's gonna allow us to get better movement with less pain faster, right? And this is the easiest part that they could help you with because they're with their hands and fingers all the time. And you know, there there is this thing where, I don't know about you guys, but I always learned it when I first came out of school, which was like retrograde massage, right? Retro from the top to the bottom, from the top to the bottom, that's all you do. And that might be great for when you have the edematous finger and hand and stuff like that. But after a while, that doesn't necessarily work as well. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to make sure that I go in the direction that actually helps them. So I go, if I massage you going down, does that help you? Does I, if I massage going up, does that feel better? So I pick the direction, they pick the direction that feels the best. And then that's the direction that we move into. And believe it or not, sometimes it's very distal. Why? Because if you pull everything distal, it's been so tight this whole time. If you pull it distal, if you pull it and pull it, do that about 10 to 20 repetitions. And then when you go in the opposite direction, ask them, did that feel easier, better? And then try to move. Because all you're doing is you're trying to move the skin. And what's below the skin? The extensor hood, the flexors, the ligaments. And if we got that to move in one direction and you're able to bend your fingers a little bit easier, a little bit smoother, then that's telling you that you could do that at home too, right? And that's gonna get you better motion. So skin goes all the way around. Remember skin and scars don't just go in one direction. They go in multiple directions. So don't be scared to try and do some rotation. So the ligaments, the muscles pull us into flexion extension but we have passive rotation. 
So sometimes just moving that around, and I do the same thing. I have a yummy side and a yucky side. And if I roll into the yummy side, and I can go below the area and above the area. I go at the area too, but you can go and you can rotate the, the P1 area. You're moving all those muscles and all those tissues. You go in one direction and you can go into the other direction. Which direction feels the best? and you just go in the direction that feels the best. And then you go and you test it against your range of motion. Any questions on that? Any questions at all? No, that was good. I mean, I'm just listening to you on the skin fascia, I feel like that is some, something that was missing, you know, in a lot of the textbooks. But as we find out, there's more and more involvement from the fascia sure. from the skin. Sure. And so uh, there's a comment by Elise. It's great so far. Yeah, feel free to join as a panelist, turn on your video, yeah. talk. You know, we welcome that. So it, it, when you were talking about the weak extensors, it just made me think that so many of my finger fractures, you know, proximal phalanx, especially ten to or middle phalanx too, they can't get their active extension back, especially if they've been pinned. Right. So that's really hard. I put them in relative extent, uh, relative motion, so that they can get this, but. Even if I do that, it's still difficult. Do you have any tricks, tips on that? Yes. So I was gonna just go into that. So thank you so much for your question. So one of the things that I talk a lot about with my patients is setting expectations, especially after talking to them around what's going on and what's safe for them to do, right? I start telling them that even though, because everyone wants flexion, they come in, they're like, I can't make a fist, I'm trying so hard, and they squeeze their fingers together. But I always tell them, hey, listen, I know that getting your fingers into flexion or into a full fist is really important, but if we work on getting your finger really straight, we can actually get into that full fist faster and less pain. And here's why. We go back to our anatomy and our structures and we think through our framework, the bones, right, which is also, really if you think about it, it's your joint, right? So the joint now has been immobilized for a really long time. The ligaments are really tight. The muscles and tendons are really tight. Nothing has been moving. If I can get you going into extension, if I can get you going into extension, look what happens. I feel like I was gifted with freaky fingers so I can really demonstrate to you <laughs> what actually really happens, right? If you go into extension, Look what you stretch. You stretch your flexors, you stretch your volar plate, and the volar plate is a ligament, and it needs to be stretched so that when it goes into flexion, it can actually glide out of the way so you can get better flexion, right? So what happens, it's not just the tissues, but where the ligaments all create a capsule. So if your capsule is really tight, then your muscles can pull and pull all it wants. It will not go anywhere. So what do you need to do first? You need to get passive extension. When you get passive extension, then you can go into better flexion. Get pass, and, and extension, even though it hurts, feels better than flexion. Ask your patients, when I push you into, there's a sharpness to that pain. But when you go into extension, even though there's pain, there's like this pain that compresses the joint and they feel like you're going to burst them, right? It's just a tightness. You go into that extension, you're going to then release the extensor tendons, right? And they're gonna be able to go back into better flexion. So when my patient is Victoria, I'm gonna show you her pictures, but I actually told her, we gotta work on extension, we gotta work on extension, we gotta work on extension. You all, the only exercise you need to do is stretch the hell out of that joint in between and just do extension. If you can do that, then when you come in, we can progress and we can progress and then you can add a little bit more. But it's, it, I usually give my patients one to two things to do and that's it. They're not therapists, they do not want to be therapists. And if we can simplify it for them, we'll get better results for them. They'll get better results for themselves.
right? So yeah. I work a lot on extension first and I set that expectation. And, and you're going to see that they're gonna harp on flexion. I'm gonna get, we're gonna get there. We just, we gotta get on extension first and then we'll get flexion. That doesn't mean I don't work on flexion when they're there, I do. I'll just start and end on extension. And I also like to go into composite extension, which is then to take the whole wrist back too, because then you stretch the whole superficialis and profundus tendons. Someone had their hand raised, I think. Yes, we have Nisha with her hand raised and we also have a question from the audience. Sure, tell me. I want, my question is about the splinting in between and then at night. How long do you recommend it and how far to the palm do you go? Okay, so I, with this particular case, and I do this with actual several of my cases, uh, I only splint the PIP. If this is where it's fractured, so go back to your fundamentals of splinting. Splint only the joint that you need to splint and don't splint anything else right so i get that pip as straight as possible and i'll make a finger gutter or one thing that i really love is doing like using a really thin material and doing a circumferential and the reason why the circumferential is really nice is because it's easier to put on and it can give you some compression and if you splint only the pip during the day they can block and they can do blocking better right Blocking done wrong won't get you results. Blocking done right will get you better results, getting the profundus moving. That means getting this PIP as straight as possible. So I recommend after the, after the, the stability of the bone, you don't have to wear it all the time. So one thing, and you want to promote function, right? So one splint that I like to, to use is that circumferential finger gutter, and I'll wear that at night, and it's all the time at night. Right? And then during the day, you just need to work on flexing it. I mean, you need to work on extending it and then using it functionally. I love a relative motion orthosis, but the relative motion orthosis, when the finger is really stiff, doesn't always help. So it's not that you can't use it. You have to pick when and when it's gonna be the most effective for you to use it. So I wouldn't necessarily start at the beginning, but as they start getting better and better motion, I'll use it. Now there's two 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 ways to put it and it depends on what you want more of right so if you're looking and you need that extension then you would put them in the relative motion orthosis where the top is on the dorsal aspect of the finger and they're going to work on getting extension or if they're really lacking that flexion you're going to put it so it's on the volar aspect and so you're going to work on getting more flexion I used, did I use this for her? I did not use this for her, for Victoria. And all I did was I had her every night stretch her finger and then wear that splint and then just do a ton of blocking. At first, in order to keep that, that PIP from falling into more and more flexion, I had her wear it throughout the day. I had her wear it throughout the day for about two weeks and then I reduced it down to only at night. And then she kept with that night orthosis. And then about a month into it, I put it into even more extension so that she could wear it at night. And the way I did it was I used Coban wrapping as well so that it would give that compression to reduce the swelling. That's the splinting that I would use. You can also, on a really, really stiff finger, I actually like plaster casting. And there's two ways that you could use plaster casting. <laughs> you can use plaster casting if it's more of a soft tissue issue. I'll show you Brian's case. He had a fracture to the DIP area, but he had grafting all right here. So his PIP flexion, like severe flexion contracture, was more of a soft tissue issue than it was a a joint issue because of the scarring from the graft and he was so sensitive there I actually casted him here at the DIP so I worked on extension casted him into as much extension as possible if I can eliminate one joint then he's gonna move the other 
and that's what helped get him the extension and the flexion that he needed. So let me see if I can share my screen just to show you guys some of the pictures of their improvement. So this is this is Victoria's finger fractured. You can see how it's an interarticular fracture and it's completely dislocated, I mean, uh, displaced, right? And this is her flexion right at the doctor's office. By the time she came in, she was at 30 degrees flexion fracture and she only had about 50 degrees of flexion. So she total of 20 degrees of motion. And then the DIP had no motion. And this is how she started with her motion. Let's see, can you guys see? Stella, you can see it, right? Yeah, yeah it looks okay, great. great. Perfect, so that's how much motion she had. And this is how much motion she has. She's done. We got her. Show us how your middle finger used to look like. <laughs> like this. Like that? <laughs> Right? Yeah. We used to joke all the time that her that finger was. Wow! Oh my god! Yeah, like, oh my god. You're like, yay! That looks that's great. All right, that's good. Find my own voice annoying. <laughs> so I didn't have any pictures of Brian before, but I just wanted to share this. What? Why can't I open it? There it is. So I don't know if you could see. Oops but he had an amputation of the index finger and he had a fracture here but lost a lot of tissue so he had a graft put in but he had an infection so the first graft didn't take and so they had to do another one so when he came in hypersensitive didn't want anyone to touch him couldn't take any pictures this was really it was in 60 degrees of flexion where we just could not extend him and he was just so sensitive he thought everything was going to bust open and this is him now so he still has some issues with the dip but he actually has really great motion with him he's the one that i because of his sensitivity and fear of putting anything around the key, I decided to use what's called a quick cast, which is a rolling brand. I cannot find that anywhere. Y'all hand therapists, help a girl out. <laughs> if you have seen it, let me know. But it's a rolling brand. It's called quick cast. And it's so great for mallet fingers and stuff like that. So he was so anxious that I was like, okay, I can't do plaster casts with him. I couldn't splint him, but I needed to show progress first for him, but also for the surgeon, right? And so I worked a lot on extension, just passive extension, because that joint was stiff. So I worked on a lot of extension and I, he allowed me to quick cast him. He wore that and immediately from one, you know, and usually I follow up every other day, so he had it, he had, it. and the great thing about quick casting is you can actually take it off if like you get claustrophobic or there's some problem. So I quick casted him on a Monday and when he came in on Wednesday, he was like, this really helped me, right? Because all of this here was just soft tissue. So if you take a look at the, the framework, it's just gonna allow you to help you critically think through and figure out what is their actual problem and then make decisions around what are you going to do for treatment because there's a lot that we can do for treatment obviously if they're swollen work on edema if they have scar work on scar if they have range of motion stuff work on range of motion stuff but how do we do all those things right grip strength is never a concern of mine and the reason why is if you don't have range of motion if you have pain how are you going to have any strength let's get that other stuff i mean obviously it's it's a necessary objective measurement that we have to take, but it's not anything that I focus on. I don't focus on it with my patients. I don't have them focus on it. And I say, if, you know, as soon as we get the joints feeling soft, the tendons moving, right? Going long and going short and the ligaments loose, 
in every direction and the skin and fascia flowing, you're gonna have great motion, right? Do I ever use buddy straps in these cases later on? I use buddy straps if I'm trying to get someone to remember to use their fingers in a certain way. I use buddy straps if they're not my favorite, but I do use them if I'm trying to get them to get more motion, you know, if they're not remembering. So it's a great one for your index finger to be buddied to your long finger so that your long finger can remind your index finger to move. It's not the best always in the small finger and the ring finger, but you know, it depends on your case, but I do use them when I deem that it's appropriate. But we have a lot of tools in our toolboxes. Any ideas for deviated PIPs? So with Victoria, she looked like she had a deviated too. And sometimes deviated is a, a structural problem. So if you broke, it's, I always say, you know, Humpty Dumpty fell, you know, shot into all the king's men and all the king's men try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So if you broke your joint so bad that there's a certain amount of displacement, then that's, it's deviated and you can't necessarily do anything about it. But if you, you're very well aligned, then your deviation might be from a ligament or a tendon skin imbalance. And one of the things that I like to do is I will actually rotate. So I will shift. Look at my finger shifting for you guys. I will shift it back into place. So sometimes if you imagine your joint like, you imagine your joint like this and your scar and your tendons are just a little off center, it's pulling your joint like this. So if you put them back in alignment and get them to move, you can realign your tendons and your ligaments and stuff like that. So if I see that they're a little malaligned, instead of just pushing them, I will act and place back in, and then in that position, I will get them to block. And that can help with deviated PIPs. I will also work on that. Remember I was talking to you guys about the skin, the rotation? Go to the yummy side. Go to the yummy side. So go to the yummy side like this. Really by six weeks, after a ligament issue, you're allowed to really start moving them. You've got to start moving them. And know that there's no fear in it because they're painful and their bodies will not let you just rupture their ligaments, right? If they're unstable to begin with, then that's a different problem, right? So if they're, un if they're unstable to begin with, they should have been immobilized from the get-go. And most of them, you, as hand therapists, we don't always see them from the beginning. So they've been immobilized for like way too long by the time they come to us. So it's really just about getting motion. Is that helpful? Any other questions? Did I? I think those are all, you took up the questions in the chat. That was great. One question from Q&A was, do you use any STM tools to help with finger motion? So I TM the uh, like myofascial tools. Yeah, the myof yeah, okay, I was just making sure I was on the right thing. <laughs> you know, I have them. I personally don't love them. I had a client call, he's a Cairo and he had a flexor tendon injury and he's got all this massive scarring. And he was like asking me, like, do you use this and this? Do you use ultrasound? Do you use ESM? I have those things, but the best tools that you're gonna come for on my hands. They're built in uh, and done the right way with a certain amount of firmness can get you the results that you're hoping for. But can you use them? Absolutely. Actually, I had Allison Taylor here. Was it Allison Taylor was here a couple months ago and she brought up the tongue scraper. So I actually brought, I bought it for my therapist and she loves it. So I think it's a personal preference, whether you like to use tools or don't like to use tools. I like to use them very, you know, particular cases, but I like the feel of my fingers because I can feel when I, I can feel the direction of the scar adhesion. So when I was talking about Victoria, she had scars here and here. 
and I could feel like if I went in one direction, I could feel it stuck. And I don't think that I could feel it as well if I was using a tool. But people love them and find that they're very useful. So I think there's no harm in them. So play around. <laughs> yeah, it is a personal preference thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but people yeah. love them. And I say go for it. Um, a, a scar tissue. So, so I do like using the tools for bigger scars. I do like using it for bigger scars. I just find that in the fingers, it's not like, I don't love it. We have cup. I try to get all the latest tools that all the big kids are talking about, but you know, I'm look at me on this whiteboard for you guys. I'm a simple girl. You can use cupping, scar tissue stuff, the extractor in the finger. I don't find it as like beneficial. I personally. I like to use paper tape. I love paper tape. You guys use paper tape? I can use paper tape and do, I usually do a double crisscross and I can even, with the tape, I can pull on it even more and I can go in different directions. And it was funny because I was working on her scar in extension. I always like to go into extension first and then I was I put her and I was holding her in that flex position and I was pulling up her skin because what's tight? The extensor part. So if I pull it to put it on some slack, it's going to help. So I was pulling and I was just like, we were talking smack about stuff and all of a sudden I hear that and that was from the scar giving, like satisfaction. And then we open and she's like, oh my God, it's straighter, it's moving, you know? so. I love tools, I have tools, but I don't know, when it comes to the fingers, nothing is just better than your own little fingers going to town. <laughs> Any other questions? Was that helpful? Oh yeah, for sure. Was that helpful um, to... I think, I, yeah, we're getting feedback that is really nice to have the interactive piece. Hey, thanks for listening to Huang's World Podcast. If you are brand new to the hand therapy world, head over to my website, www.handtherapysecrets.com, where you can get started with some of our free guides and paid programs for both OTs and PTs diving into the world of hand therapy. Or if you've been listening for a while, watching on our YouTube channel, and you think you could benefit from developing and moving your career further along in hand therapy, reach out to me and my team at info at handtherapysecrets.com and tell us exactly what you're looking for. By the way, if you know someone who could benefit from today's show, please share. Thanks. See you on the next episode.